Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Fourteen. I want to run, but I stop myself because it won't do any good. There are no doors. There is no end to this hallway. Nowhere to hide. As soon as the marchers turn the corner, they will see us. The sound draws closer. If you run, your enemy will hunt you. That phrase again, rolling through my thoughts. Whose voice is it? One more thing I can't remember. And yet I know the voice speaks the truth. As exhausted as we are, as thirsty and as hungry, I don't think we could run very far or very fast. Whoever is coming can either see our backs and know we're afraid or see the knife and know we are dangerous. I press close to the right side wall, knife out in front of me. O'Malley stands a step behind me, at my left shoulder, holding the scepter like a club. I instantly understand he is not behind me because he is afraid, but rather because he is following my lead, staying close to the wall so we are a little less obvious. If danger comes, I know he will try to step out front and face it first, because he is so much bigger than I am. Maybe he isn't any good at fighting, but that doesn't stop him from standing with me. He's so close I can sense him, feel his body heat. He is sweaty and stinky. His scent, it's new, something different from the way boys smelled back in my limited memories of school. It's distracting, almost as if I like it, but he doesn't smell good. I feel my heart in my throat, pounding all the way into my stomach. Is that because of the danger or also because of him? I clench my teeth and readjust the knife in my hand. We're in trouble. I need to focus. Bello pulls at my left arm. Em, let's go. What if it's the grown-ups? I yank my arm away. I don't have time to explain to her that a voice in my head, a memory, is guiding me, and I know its words are true. We don't run, I say. Whoever is coming, we face them. Bello starts to cry. Of course she does. She moves behind O'Malley and me to stand with Aramovsky and Spingate. The marching footsteps sound so close, like the steady beat of a big drum. A thought grips me. What if Aramovsky is right? What if there are monsters? Spingate doesn't know for sure that monsters don't exist. No one does. Visions of claws and fangs and wild eyes flash before me, a horde of beasts flowing down the hall, searching for helpless children to carry away and devour. But I'm not a child anymore, and I'm not helpless. The marchers come out of the hall and turn to their right, away from us. Not monsters, people. Two columns of beautiful people dressed like us, led by the biggest person I've ever seen. They all turn to their right, away from us, so focused on matching their steps that they don't even look our way. The sense of relief is so overwhelming, I almost laugh at myself for believing in Aramovsky's nonsense. The leader carries a long stick and marches with precise loud steps. His skin has only a little more color than pale bellows. 
Gleaming blonde curls cling to his head so tightly, they don't move when he walks. I count 19 people, two lines of nine, with the big blonde in front. I stay very still. Maybe the marchers won't see us at all. I almost have time to turn and tell everyone to be quiet. But before I do, Spingate shouts out, Hey, over here! My heart sinks. The marching lines stop. They are not so ordered now. Spingate startled them. They shift out of their lines, afraid, some suddenly holding each other. Spingate, you idiot, I hear Aramovsky hiss from behind me. Why did you do that? They're the same as us, she answers. We can all work together. The blonde boy runs our way, puts himself between us and his fellow marchers. He points the stick at us, and I see it ends in a wicked blade. It's not a stick, it's a spear. He has a circle star on his forehead. He raises the spear high. Everyone, follow me, he screams, then sprints toward us. Two of the marchers are right behind him, a boy and a girl, both with short, glossy black hair and caramel-colored skin. The rest of them don't move. They stand in the hall, unsure of what to do. My feet feel stuck to the floor. O'Malley tugs at my arm, urging me to run away, but I can't move. The blonde boy charges. He's going to shove that spear point into my belly, and I will wind up like Yong on the floor, dead and cold and alone, crumbling away into dust. I'm going to die, and I haven't even learned my first name. The spear-wielding boy slows, stops a few steps from us. He's looking at me, but down. I realize I'm holding the knife out, point first. Even through my fear, I notice the shape of his face. He is beautiful in a way that is different from O'Malley. This boy is bigger, stronger. His shoulders and neck are thicker. There is a bruised bump on the right side of his heavy jaw. All our clothes are too small for us, but the blonde boy's shirt is buttoned only at the waist. His broad chest stretches the fabric into a wide V. The sleeves are so tight, I think his big arms might rip them apart at any moment. With even his smallest motion, I see muscles flutter beneath smooth skin. He stands there. He had one strategy, charge. That didn't work. And now, he doesn't know what to do. Maybe I won't die after all. Hello, I say. He blinks. Uh, hello. I lower my knife to my side. I'm savage. I say. This time, that seems like the right name to use. The boy sets the butt of the spear on the floor and angles the shaft back until the blade points straight to the ceiling. He looks at me like he doesn't know what to make of me. He's not angry, not suspicious. He's more confused than anything else. You didn't run, he says. I shake my head. No, I didn't. What's your name? He pauses a moment, maybe waiting for me to change my mind, to suddenly turn and sprint away from him. When I don't, he shrugs. I think my name is Bishop, he says. He thinks that's his name. My heart sinks. He doesn't know any more than we do. R, Bishop, he says. 
That's what was written on my cradle. Cradle? The word makes me think of babies, even smaller than the little ones we saw in the other room. He nods. We were lying in them when we woke up. Oh, I say. You mean the coffins? He stares at me, then smiles. Coffins? That's not very happy now, is it? I realize that he's the only one in the hallway not wearing a red tie. His eyes are a strange color. Yellow, a bit darker than the curly blonde hair matted to his head. His eyes catch the light, almost seem to glow. That symbol on his forehead, he's a circle star, like Yang was. The two hard-eyed people behind him, the boy and the girl, they are also circle stars. Will they try to take over like Yang did? Will they hit people to get what they want? Bishop looks past me, taking in the others. Are there more of you? I almost say, there were six of us. Then Yang's dying face is all I can see. Just five, I say, forcing the vision away. There's 19 of you? He looks back down the hall, realizes that only two of his marchers came with him. He shakes his head in disgust. Depends on how you count, he says. He leans close to me, speaks quietly. Most of them aren't worth much of anything, except for El Safani here. He gestures to the boy and the girl. They talk, the girl first, then the boy. We are strong, stronger than the others, except for Bishop. Their eyes look exactly alike, dark lined with heavy eyebrows and deep brown irises. They are lean and firm, built for speed rather than pure strength. The boy is slightly taller than the girl. They both still seem ready to fight, even though their leader is relaxed and smiling. Two people, but he only said one name. Which one is El Safani? I ask. They both are, Bishop says. That's what was on their cradles. T. El Safani and T. El Safani. They're twins. Bishop's eyes take in my clothes, twitch over to Spingate's shirt, Bellow's lip, O'Malley's cut. How did you all get so bloody? Was there a fight? The rest of the marchers are slowly coming closer. There is no blood on their shirts, none on Bishop or El Safani either. This group has had an easier time than mine, it seems. An accident, I say, and glance back at the others, especially Spingate, silently telling them to stay quiet. The new people don't need to know about Yang at least not right now. Bishop shrugs, he smiles wide, a smile that would be more at home on the face of a little boy than on the face of a grown man. His chest puffs up, straining the last button of his too small shirt. He raises the spear high until the point almost touches the glowing ceiling. Savage, I like you. You and your friends can join my tribe. Tribe, a word of power. He charged us, screaming, furious, weapon in hand, ready to attack, I'm sure of it. And now he acts like this is recess and we're all pals? Why are you raising the spear, I ask. My question confuses him for a moment. That's how we make announcements, he says, as if that is completely obvious. When you raise the spear, everyone has to listen. Those are the rules. 
O'Malley takes a step forward, stands shoulder to shoulder with me. He seemed so big when I first met him, but compared to Bishop, O'Malley doesn't look that big at all. Join your tribe, O'Malley says, his blue eyes narrow. Maybe you should join our tribe. But I've got the spear. That means I'm the leader. He holds it up, not threatening, but rather showing it to us, as if we had somehow missed seeing it altogether. O'Malley gestures to me. So, he says, Savage has the knife. Something about all of this makes my stomach churn. Spears and knives, tribes, the beginnings of an argument, an argument about who should lead. That's how it started with Yong. Things are heading in a bad direction. I have to do something to prevent that. No one needs to join anyone else's tribe, I say. My words confuse Bishop even more. He's getting mad. Someone has to be in charge, he says. There have to be rules. That's how things work. His fingers flex on the spear handle. I know somehow that if our bishop gets angry enough, my friends could get hurt. A girl gently pushes through the marchers. Her skin is pale, but without spingate's pinkish hue. The tone is hard to define, a brown tan that borders on white, but is clearly not. She is my height. Does my skirt look as short as hers? Her long muscles flutter with even the slightest move, especially on her powerful legs. Her hair is unlike anyone else's, long kinky curls that puff out wider and wider before they end at her smooth toned shoulders. She's not smiling now, but when she does, I know it will be stunning. She has a circle star on her forehead. There is no blood on her shirt, but there is a big bluish bruise on her right cheekbone. Other than that, she appears to be fine, except for her lips, which are dry and chapped, just like ours. I realize that all the new kids have dry lips, even Bishop. Do you have any water? The girl asks. Bishop glares down at her. Shut up, Latu. I do the talking. She glares back at him defiant. Maybe you should do less talking and more leading, Bishop. We're thirsty. He sighs. Do you want what happened last time to happen again? I don't know, Latu says. Do you? She is solid and could probably beat me to a pulp. But Bishop is nearly twice her size. Anger pours off her. So does fear. Has she already fought him and lost? I'm a good leader, Latu, Bishop says. You don't see blood all over our shirts, do you? Bishop is trying to act like Latu doesn't bother him, but he's not a convincing faker. He's getting angrier by the second. El Savani watches him, as if the twins are waiting to see what he does. They are wound up tight. They look ready to attack, just like Yang was. Are all the circle stars like that? I need to get Bishop thinking about something other than O'Malley and Latu. Bishop, where did your group come from? He points behind him to the new hallway. From there. Obviously, they came from there. That's not the information I was hoping for. We keep turning, says the boy El Safani. Bishop said it's good to turn, says the girl El Safani. Another boy laughs, a cutting sound that makes me feel stupid, even though I have nothing to do with their group. Bishop turns stabs a finger toward the sound. Shut up, Gaston. I told you not to laugh at me, 
A boy slides through the marchers packed in behind Bishop and Latu. He's small, even smaller than I am. His white shirt fits perfectly. All the buttons are buttoned, his sleeves are the right length, and his red tie is nice and neat. His left eye is puffy and bruised. His symbol is the same as Spingate's, a jagged circle. I'm not laughing at you, Bishop, Gaston says. I remembered a joke, that's all. It's really funny. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was this really big, really stupid kid that liked to hit people. He kept making all these turns without knowing where he was going, and Bishop takes a step toward Gaston. Gaston moves fast, melts away behind the bigger kids in his group, and is instantly out of sight. That's what I thought, Bishop says. He glances back to the intersection. When he and his friends were marching, he was so self-assured, like he was carved from confidence. A little bit of teasing, and now he seems full of doubt. Maybe we should go back, Bishop says quietly. There were a couple turns where we, maybe we should try that way again. Latu shakes her head, shakes it hard. I'm not going back, she says. I'm not. Her wide eyes burn with fierce determination born from true terror. I see nods of agreement among Bishop's group, faces filled with fear. Even Alsafani's cold expressions shift into something normal. They are children again, little kids terrified by something they want to forget. What did you see? I ask, even though I suspect they saw the same things we did. Bishop licks his dry lips. He stares absently at the wall. Rooms, he says, rooms filled with skeletons. Some of the bones look like they'd been cut into pieces. I nod, that's what we saw too. He continues talking as if I said nothing at all. There was one strange room. We got to it through a door in the floor. Went down a ladder. Gaston was the only one who could get it open. That room and some of the others had these, ah, uh, Gaston. What did you call them? Gaston slides out of the crowd again, but keeps his distance from Bishop. Pedestals, he says. He holds his hand at his sternum, palm down, showing how tall they were. Made of white stone. The way they were placed in the rooms, they seemed important. Like a really important statue was supposed to rest on them, you know? But all the pedestals were cracked or broken except for three that were in that room Bishop was talking about with the ladder. But that place, his voice trails off. He looks afraid, more afraid even than Latu. Something in the room scared you, I say. What was it? Gaston starts to talk, then stops. He looks at Bishop, who won't meet his eyes. Maybe these two don't like each other, but something happened down there that unsettled them both. A body, Gaston says quietly, all shriveled up, just bones and skin. It was face down, sprawled out. It had clothes on that I think were white, but the, he pauses, rubs his face, then continues. The juices stained the clothes, made the cloth different colors. The body had some kind of metal shackle on one arm with a thin point sticking out of it, but the shackle wasn't chained to anything. He nods toward Bishop's spear. That was in the dead guy's back, shoved through so hard it stuck in the floor. 
Bishop got his weapon the same way I got mine, out of a body that died from it. For some reason, I want to make this smaller boy feel better. Maybe he's embarrassed he was afraid, but there is nothing to be embarrassed about. We saw dead bodies too, I say. Bodies are frightening. Gaston glances upward, thinking, then shakes his head. No, he says. Well, yes, the body was all shriveled up and disgusting and scary. But it wasn't that. It was the room itself. Just Bishop and I went down. It was really dark and round and, well, there was something wrong with it is all. Haunted, Bishop says quietly. It's haunted. Gaston rolls his eyes. Bishop, there's no such thing as ghosts. What are you, 10 years old? Bishop snarls at him. Oh, yeah? If there's no such thing as ghosts, then why did you scramble up that ladder so fast, huh? You almost peed your pants. Gaston says nothing. I can tell he wants to give an explanation, tell everyone what exactly was wrong with the room, but he can't. I get the feeling Gaston thinks he knows everything. When there is something he doesn't know, something that he feels instead of sees, it bothers him. I will have to remember that. Latu crosses her arms. Enough talk. I'm not going back. I don't want to see any more bones. Bishop shakes off his memories of the strange room. He forces a smile. Once again, he is the big-chested, broad-shouldered, brave king of the playground. We miss something is all, he says. There's probably bones all over this place. We are going back. When we get to the hall that leads to the haunted room, we'll go the other way. Simple. Before meeting the marchers, I knew I wanted to travel down the new hall. But Bishop's group came from there, and they didn't find any food or water. They all seemed to be a bit lost. Same thing could happen to us if we go that way. And I have to agree with Latu. I don't want to see any more bodies. Maybe it's best if I stick to my original plan. Up can't go on forever. I start to point down the long hall behind me then realize I'm using the knife to do that. I stop myself and use my free hand instead. We came from that way. We're following this hall until it ends. I think if we turn too much, we won't know which way we're going. The Elsifani twins look at each other. The rest of Bishop's friends exchange glances. Is it possible this never occurred to them? We'll keep going straight, I say. You are all welcome to join us if you want. Bishop's expression changes. He looks at me with admiration, but also something else, like I have challenged his authority, and he has to do something about that. He steps closer. He's a full head taller than I am. I have to look up to meet his strange yellow eyes. O'Malley bristles. He's as wound up as Elsafani. Bishop smiles down at me. You are brave, he says. You didn't run. Almost everyone runs from me. Our group should stay together. There is strength in numbers. You and your friends will come with us. He thinks I'm brave. It's almost funny. The biggest person I've ever seen rushed at me screaming, thrusting a spear. I couldn't even move. I was frozen from fear. And he mistakes that for courage. Well, whatever he thinks, we're not going to start blindly wandering around this place. I square my shoulders and stare up at him. 
I told you where we are going, Bishop. That half-confused, half-angry look comes over his face again. But I carry the spear. That means I'm in charge. O'Malley leans in. Maybe someone else should carry it. Bishop smiles at him. It is a very different smile from the one he gave me. You could take it out of my hand, he says to O'Malley. If you do, then you're in charge. O'Malley holds the scepter at his side. He nervously grips and regrips the jeweled shaft. Bishop glances down at the scepter, almost eagerly, like he hopes O'Malley will take the first swing. I like Savage, Bishop says. I don't like you. What's your name? O'Malley. That's a pretty weapon, O'Malley, Bishop says. Nice and sparkly. This is going to end in blood, just like with Yong. I can prevent a fight. All I have to do is let Bishop lead. All I have to do is say the words and no one will get hurt. But I can't, because I want to be the leader. Still smiling at O'Malley, Bishop closes his eyes. Why don't you hit me with your sparkly weapon? I'm not even looking. You'll probably knock me out with one shot. Then you can take the spear. Bishop is daring him. I see O'Malley considering it, brow furrowing, eyes flitting from the bridge of Bishop's nose to his temple to his jaw. Beads of sweat break out on O'Malley's forehead, darkening the dust coating his skin. We're about to slide into a huge fight. Which El Safani should I stab first? O'Malley is going to swing. Blood will spill, blood all over. Then, O'Malley visibly relaxes. The stress vanishes from his features. His face is once again blank, expressionless. I have a better idea, Bishop, he says. You insist on all of us staying together. So why don't all of us decide who gets to be in charge? Bishop's eyes open. His smile fades. How can everyone decide? That's the point of having a leader in the first place, to make decisions, isn't it? O'Malley nods. That is the point. But sticking together was your idea, right? Bishop looks suspicious. Yes, but I still don't know what you're saying. As easily as he melted into the crowd, little Gaston slides out of it again. He means we take a vote, Bishop the boy says. That way no one gets hurt. Bishop glances at the others in his group. This situation is getting away from him, and he knows it. It's not that he's stupid, because I can tell he's not. But at the same time, he's not as smart as O'Malley. Not even close. Bishop thinks for a moment, then nods. All right, fine, we can vote. I organized 18 people. Savage, you organized four. So I win the vote. His chest puffs out. I am the leader. Gaston shakes his head. The only reason you were in charge in the first place was because if we didn't agree with you, you hit us. You didn't organize people, you oversized idiot. You bullied them. I glance around at the other new faces. No, no one has blood on their shirts. But through the caked on dust, I see a few bruises, a few puffy lips. The bruise on Latu's cheek, it's about the size of Bishop's big hand if that hand formed a big fist. Bishop seems annoyed, exasperated, like he can't fathom why everyone doesn't understand basic facts. I made decisions, 
he says. If someone doesn't make decisions, then no decisions get made. In that instant, I know Bishop and I are more alike than we are different. Someone has to make decisions, but that someone shouldn't be him. Gaston points at me. She has a plan. You have us wandering around, but everyone is too afraid of you to say anything. I see some of Bishop's friends nodding. Only some, though there are several with circle stars like his, like Yang's, like El Safani's. None of those people agree. I glance at O'Malley, my eyes asking him if I should say something. O'Malley shakes his head ever so slightly, barely a twitch left, then right. His blue eyes stare hard into me. He wants me to let everyone keep talking, so I remain quiet. Bishop gestures down the hall. All Savage is doing is walking straight. Where's the adventure in that? Now the other circle stars nod. They want adventure too. I count quickly, including Bishop, Elsafani, and Latu. Eight people have circle stars. There is one girl with the circle cross, like Brewer. One more boy with the jagged circle like Gaston and Spingate. Two half circles like O'Malley and six empty circles like Bello and me. Aramovsky is the only circle in a circle. I wonder which way he'll vote. Bishop turns to face his friends. His shoulders draw back and his chest sticks out. He talks to them, not in a shout, but not far from one. Who wants to walk straight? That's dumb. The more we turn, the more area we cover. Come on, we're going to find something soon. We miss something is all. We'll go back and turn a different way. The members of Bishop's group who do not have circle stars stare down, glance around the hallway, cast their gaze anywhere but at him. They won't meet his eyes. I finally understand why O'Malley wants me to keep quiet. Bishop is losing the vote all by himself, but I can't rely on that. I have to say something. If I can get these people on my side, I can end this without any conflict. If, that is, Bishop actually accepts the vote. We don't need adventure, I say. We need to get out of this place. I see faces change instantly. I see wide-eyed admiration. Gaston raises his hand. I vote for Savage, he says, still glaring at Bishop. Who else votes for Savage? Bello, Aramovsky, O'Malley, and Spingate raise their hands. So do Latu and everyone in Bishop's group that is not a circle star. Gaston points at each, counting slowly and loudly, too loudly, as if he's enjoying what is an already obvious result. That's 16 for Savage. Now, raise your hand if you want Bishop. Seven arms go up, including Bishop's. He has lost, but all the circle stars except for Latu voted for him. They glare at me. Four boys, two girls. The circle star boys are taller than most of us, thick with muscle. The girls' circle stars are toned and lean. They look like they could probably beat O'Malley or Aramovsky in a fist fight. Without the knife, I wouldn't stand a chance against any of them. If the circle stars ignore the vote and follow Bishop, it's going to be a problem. I realize that I didn't vote, but it doesn't matter. Gaston nods. 16 votes for Savage, seven for Bishop. His mouth twists into something that is half smile, half sneer. Savage won, she's the leader. Bishop, give her the spear. Bishop's eyes narrow, his cracked lips flatten. 
His nostrils flare. At that moment, he is even more frightening than when he ran at me screaming. Violence bubbles under the surface. For a second, I wonder if he's going to stab the spear into Gaston's belly. It's mine, Bishop says. The spear is mine. O'Malley points at it. You said the leader carries the spear. M is the leader, so give it to her. O'Malley's words sound far different from Gaston's. There is no malice or arrogance in O'Malley's voice. Just an infuriatingly calm delivery of what everyone already knows. The spear shaft starts to shake. Bishop is squeezing it so hard, his arm trembles. He likes being the leader. And I realize, so do I. For a long moment, I am sure this will erupt in a battle that ends with our bones scattered across the hallway. Then Bishop closes his eyes. He tilts the spear toward me. I take it. I can do this. I can lead us. I hand my knife to O'Malley. O'Malley hands the scepter to Spingate. Gaston seems to see the scepter for the first time. His eyes go wide with recognition. Bishop shakes his head, then nods. He lets out a big, cheek-puffing breath. The pending violence inside him evaporates. He's already over it. His face shows whatever he is feeling as plainly as if he's speaking it out loud. Okay, Savage, you won, he says. Fair is fair, you're the leader. So, what now? I heft the spear in one hand, feeling the weight. Maybe I should make the scepter the symbol of leadership again, a tool rather than a weapon. But no, Spingate knows how to use the scepter better than I do. And a part of me realizes that there has to be something to signify who is in charge. I was the leader of four other people. Now, I am the leader of 23. Everyone seems to want to follow me, and I don't know why. Whatever the reason, I will not let them down. Not sure of what I'm supposed to do. I mimic what Bishop did. I raise the spear. We go straight, I say. I walk. They follow. You have been listening to Alive. Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors, by Kevin McLeod. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's king.
King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.